government recently established the Pacific Labor Scheme and Pacific Labor Facility, as well as reoriented and rebadged the Australia Pacific Training Coalition. In light of these changes, this panel at the 2019 Australasian Aid Conference provided the opportunity for a conversation about the complexities and opportunities that labour mobility provides for the Pacific region. Well, good morning. There are still some additional chairs being brought. Um, so hopefully before too long, everyone will have a seat. Um, it's slightly warm, but imagine you're in Kiribati. Uh, and we've all been in hot places. We'll keep the door open so that we can have some. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Kay Schofield and I'm the chair of the board of the Australia Pacific Training Coalition. APTC and APTC is facilitating and coordinating uh, this session, panel session uh, on Pacific labour mobility, uh, opportunities to build our futures together. And the back end of it is not a bit of trivia, opportunities to build our futures together. And together is the operating word. Whether you're coming at this from a research background a political background, an Australian background, a Pacific background, a Vanuatu background in Rotonga, uh, whether you're coming at it from a policy background or an implementation background, the intent of this session is to provide a, a multi-dimensional um, perspective on the issue of Pacific labour mobility. Um, Labour mobility is not a new thing in the Pacific. Uh, it didn't get invented with the Seasonal Workers Program or the Pacific Labour Scheme. It's long been an element of discussions uh, between Australia and Pacific countries and between Pacific countries themselves. And of course, individuals, individual Pacific Islanders and individual Australians have long um, exercise their right to move between countries. Um, when I first became involved in APTC, it was in 2005, um, and that was the point at which Pacific governments, the Pacific Island Forum Leaders Meeting, and the Australian Government began to put the issue of Pacific labour mobility on the agenda was strongly coming from the Pacific. Um, and in those early days, the central question was why and if. Why would you do this? And if you did this, what are the negative consequences in country, in Australia, in New Zealand? Why and if? And it took many years to arrive at a political consensus that the benefits of Pacific labour mobility outweighed the risks. It took a lot of research to understand the issue. It took a lot of policy <coughs> dialogue in individual countries because what the departments or ministries of commerce thought wasn't necessarily the same as what the Ministries of Labour thought 
or the ministries of education thought. So within individual Pacific countries, between Pacific countries and between Pacific countries and Australia, there's been a long debate. And I think it's most interesting that now we have reached, I wouldn't go so far as to say a full uh, settlement, but a high level of consensus, not about why or if, but much more about who, when, how. And the idea today was to try and bring some of those questions about who, when, how um, to the panel. And um, the way the panel has been constructed is to start off with a sending country perspective, which is where one should always start, understand what the intermediation strategies are, and to understand what Australian um, initiatives are going to do to facilitate those. So we are fortunate today to have a, a fabulous uh, group of panellists. I'm going to introduce the four of them uh, together and then that will allow the presentations to flow one from the other. Um, the way it will work is that each panellist will speak for 10 minutes and um, Hannah here will advise every, every pan, each panellist when two minutes are up, when you've got two minutes left. Then that will leave us enough time for a conversation in the room because what we think is most useful is not uh, just sitting and listening, but triggering conversations between and amongst ourselves in the same way as labour mobility will only work if we're triggering and having meaningful conversations amongst ourselves and then beyond. So let me start by um, introducing uh, Dr. Alisi Kautoke Holani. Uh, Alisi is the uh, Deputy CEO of the Tongan Ministry of Commerce, Labour and Trade. She's worked extensively on a range of labour mobility and trade issues, but more recently has been engaged to develop Tonga's labour mobility policy. Her PhD was on the Seasonal Workers Program and PACER Plus in enhancing the development impact of labour mobility in the Pacific. Secondly, we have Richard Curtin. Dr Richard Curtin is currently Research Fellow in the Development Policy Centre at ANU. He specialises in research and policy development related to seasonal work and skills-based labour mobility from the Pacific and into Australia and New Zealand. And he's a frequent contributor to the um, Dev Policy blog. Then we have Nick Volk. Nick has worked in development for the last 20 years and is currently the team leader of the Pacific Labour Facility. And previously, he led the team that piloted the Pacific Labour Scheme in Kiribati, Tuvalu and Nauru. And uh, certainly not least, um, Andy Fong Choi. Uh, Andy is the Labour Mobil Mobility Advisor for APTC, uh, supporting its renewed emphasis on labour mobility. Andy has extensive Pacific regional experience in economic governance, trade, security and political governance. Uh, 
Before joining APTC, she was the Deputy Secretary-General of Economic Governance and Security for the Pacific Island Forum Secretariat. So we're fortunate to have four terrific panellists. And without further ado, uh, Alisi, could I ask you to uh, start off the discussion, please? Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Malolele from Tonga. Um, very privileged to be part of the panel, and I'd like to thank Sally and Andy and the APTC team for the invitation to be part of this very important panel. I've been tasked with giving you a very brief overview of the development benefits um, from labor mobility for Pacific Island countries, and I have to emphasize very brief because I'm limited to only four slides. Um, but to appreciate, so these are real development gains that we have um, experienced through the Seasonal Worker Program uh, under Australia and the New Zealand recognized um, employment scheme, and we anticipate to further increase with the uh, Pacific Labor Scheme. But to appreciate the development gains from labor mobility, um, I think it's important for us to first look at the special development challenges that this region faces. First off, um, most, a lot of these countries in the, in the Pacific region are some of the most small, of the smallest countries in the world, not only in land size, but also in population. If you exclude PNG and just consider the 13 Pacific <coughs> Island countries, they would total to the, to the size of Tasmania, really. And if you look at population-wise, there are countries that have populations of just 1,500 or so. And so our smallness limits our opportunities for economics, economies of scale. It um, increases, it, it means that we face very high input costs, which renders our uh, exports almost um, non-competitive in the international market. These countries are a lot of, we're in small island countries in the largest ocean in the Pacific, and our remoteness means that we, our dis, the, the, the large distance from um, key markets means that we face very high transportation costs, which also adds to the cost restrictions to developing industries, even industries where we may have competitive advantage, such as in tourism. Um, as mentioned by the Secretary for Foreign Affairs, the Pacific is highly vulnerable to uh, natural disasters, including now with the onset of climate change. Um, the increasing intensity and frequency of natural disasters imposes not only economic costs for these small island countries, but for some, for example, last year in Tonga with the tropical cyclone Gita, the destruction would be equivalent to about 30% 30, 30 of the GDP. And if you consider the smaller atolls in the Pacific, um, the, the, the onset of, of climate change could almost threaten their very existence. In addition to that is the rapid population growth, particularly in the Melanesian countries, which means the total population growth rate of the Pacific is faster than the world average. This means that we have a, a growing youth bulge, and so the, the domestic economies, the small economies of the Pacific, increasingly face the pressure of how to provide employment for their growing populations and how to turn this youth bulge into a dividend. And we are facing very high constraints, mainly because of the limited capacity um, of our, our small economies. 
And if you can look at these development challenges, a lot of them are inherent to our geographic characteristics. So you can't really do much about them. You can't really move any small country anywhere or increase their size. And so we have to look at a development approach that allows us to overcome these geographic constraints. And that's where labor mobility becomes a very viable development opportunity for the Pacific. One of the, of the key gains, or the, the main economic gain from labor mobility is in remittances. And if we just focus on the volume of remittances, it's very clear that it could have larger development impact compared to other capital flows. The volume of remittances from the seasonal worker program um, have exceeded the volume of capital flows and foreign trade, uh, foreign aid. Uh, for Tonga, um, we've, uh, in remittances, is estimated to, to amount to about 99.4 million Australian since the inception of the SWP in 2012. For Vanuatu, it's 31.5 million. And if you look um, in the case of Tonga, the volume of remittances from these seasonal worker programs have really contributed uh, significantly to remittances. And if you look at the share of remittances uh, of GDP compared to exports and FDI, it's very clear that remittances far exceeds these capital flows. So they have, it has the potential to really have a, a bigger development impact in the Pacific Island countries. It's an important source because of its, of its volume. It, it exists as a very important source of foreign exchange, which offsets our large balance of payment deficits. But the, the volume, this large volume of remittances is only um, limited to the, the key top sending countries, uh, which is mainly Tonga and Vanuatu and, main, and also Samoa. The, the, the other Pacific Island countries have received, the remittances that they have received are quite negligible, and this is mainly because of their lower participation rates and earnings. Um, it, uh, labor mobility also contributes significantly to employment creation, particularly for the unemployed. I'm um, not sure if the graph is clear, but if you look at um, Pacific unemployment rate compared to other regions, for example, Southeast Asia, Southeast Asian average would be around, can't even read, <laughs> I think it's around 2.1%. For the Pacific, it's 10. Um, and so you see that there are countries which are experiencing higher unemployment than others, but it's very clear that unemployment is a real development issue for the Pacific. The SWP and RSC or other uh, seasonal worker programs provides employment opportunities, paid employment, for a lot of these unemployed people. For SWP in 2016, it generated employment for about 6,200 Pacific workers. And they were able to earn incomes that they would never dream of earning in the Pacific Islands. For example, for Tonga SWP workers, they would earn as much as almost close to 20,000 Australian in the six months that they're here in Australia. But, um, these, uh, the, the impact of, of labor mobility on unemployment really depends on the recruitment policies that sending countries have. For Tonga, it has always been a pro-poor uh, recruitment policy, so the focus has always been on recruiting the unemployed. Other countries, is not the case, and um, so the impact on unemployment varies across countries. Um, I'm missing some 
paragraphs here. <laughs> I'm not sure where they went. But um, it, this, the unemployment issue requires also not just a, a focus on low-skilled, but also semi-skilled. Uh, a recent survey that we did of TVET institutions in Tonga um, identified that about 60% of graduates are not able to find employment each year. So there is a need to increasingly find um, employment, uh, labor mobility opportunities that are for low-skilled and semi-skilled. And so we're very excited about the, the Pacific Labor Scheme and the opportunities that that would um, give semi-skilled workers in Tonga and the impact that it would have on unemployment. Another key gain for the Pacific is in poverty alleviation. Um, as the, the Pacific societies are increasingly rapidly becoming more monetized, you would identify that um, access to cash incomes is highly correlated to poverty. And so there is a need to, um, to increase access of households, particularly uh, low-income households, to cash paid incomes. And labor mobility is that opportunity. It provides an opportunity through remittances for these households to access cash incomes and fairly high cash incomes. Um, these remittances have helped improve the standard of living of a lot of these families. They've um, improved their housing, um, uh, transportation, and so it reduces their vulnerability to poverty. It also um, provides an opportunity for them to increase or improve their resilience. Um, to exogenous uh, shocks to household incomes, and that includes uh, natural disasters. In Tonga, for example, based on anecdotal evidence from last year's um, tropical cyclone Gita, households that had workers participating in the uh, seasonal worker programs, they were able to recover fairly faster than households that um, did not have workers participating. And so you would see the importance of labor mobility, mobility in um, improving the, reducing the vulnerability of households to poverty and increasing their economic resilience. Um, and also remittances from labor mobility have helped households increase their savings. They've um, been able to invest in business activities, which allows them to diversify their incomes and so contribute to sustainable livelihoods. Lastly, and I think most importantly, is skills development. For small island countries in the Pacific, human capital development is very crucial for long-term economic and social development. And labor mobility provides um, a unique opportunity for human capital formation. Um, the remittances that workers sent through, um, based on just uh, the, the, the information from the SWP and RSE, a lot of these remittances have been invested in education the education of um, the children of workers. They've been able to access, um, access higher education, student, uh, their children going to TVET um, and universities, so that has a, a real impact on, on human capital development. But it also, labor mobility, mobility in itself can become a process of human capital formation. Um, and if we focus on skills development, it can really allow um, workers to gain skills that they can eventually transfer in their um, in Pacific countries for, for development. Um, in the case of the SWP and RSE, it really depends on whether there are opportunities to facilitate this skills development and transfer. So a lot of, of these workers come and work in, in horticultural in the horticultural sector. And um, in Tonga, we're trying to develop these orange orchards to help them come in and apply the skills that they're um, 
that they have learned here, but it's, it's kind of difficult. Um, what we're anticipating is that the new Pacific Labor Facility would have a greater potential of, of having um, this impact on, on human capital development, but there is a need to focus on skills development from the pre-departure um, stage all through to the um, on-the-job training and to provide opportunities, including reintegration programs, to really facilitate the transfer of these skills for development in the Pacific. But as um, more people leave, the private sector and, and the Pacific are complaining that you know, workers are leaving and it has an impact on, um, on the development of these sectors. And so there is this brain drain that's happening and um, the brain drain could eventually be turned into a brain gain. Um, so there are needs, there is a need for key targeted uh, policies in the sending countries as well as in Australia and New Zealand to facilitate uh, net skill gains for development in the Pacific. But um, Richard will talk more on that area. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elise. Uh, could I now ask Richard Curtin to... Um... Thank you. What I'm going to do today is uh, try and present a much of a focus from a sending country perspective and this is born from a recent project that I've just completed for the government of Vanuatu where uh, myself and a colleague wrote a report developing uh, the options for a labour mobility policy. We've just found out last Friday that it's been endorsed and now the government itself will go on and develop the policy. But in, in doing that exercise, I became particularly conscious of the fact that labour mobility is something that is very different to an aid program. In an aid program, uh, the stereotypic uh, approach is to develop a template, to design it separately from uh, the country, usually by outside designers, and then uh, put it in place and then carefully monitor how that program's been implemented. Well, in the case of labour mobility, it's very much a different equation because the sending country is matched by the receiving country. And the receiving country has real liabilities that they have to manage just as the sending country has to. The receiving country has to manage the liability that the arrangements, uh, the employment arrangements that the workers are going into are carefully monitored and issues, problems that arise are addressed quickly. Otherwise, you get big stories in the newspaper about uh, workers from Vanuatu who are being paid $8 an hour. I mean, it's obviously a more complex uh, picture, but uh, things get, there's a great danger that things will be judged in the media in the way that an aid program would never be subject to the same publicity. Yeah. The big issue I think that uh, many um, sending countries are concerned about, and this came through in a labour mobility summit that the government of Vanuatu put on in March of last year, where this was raised as a concern by the Minister for Agriculture who felt that um, 
the large number of workers that were going from Vanuatu was affecting agricultural production in the areas that they were coming from. And I think this is all also being raised as a concern in Tonga, you were saying to me this morning, Elisi. So that unless there's a careful monitoring of the impact of the people, uh, the, the loss of the people who are now taking up opportunities under uh, labour mobility, then there's a danger that there can be a, a political backlash. It might be uh, only in the short term, while in the longer term the economy could be benefiting from that uh, circular flow, but it's the short term that often uh, influences major political decisions, as we well know. The issue of uh, <coughs> semi-skilled workers um, now moving out under the uh, Pacific Labor Scheme is going to affect uh, particularly the tourism sector, but even under the uh, APTC with its uh, renewed uh, brief to focus on labor mobility, there are going to be people with trade backgrounds who will be attracted to taking up opportunities in Australia. It's interesting to note in the most recent Northern Territory Designated Area Migration Agreement, which has just been renewed for five years, that uh, provides opportunities for people at below the skill threshold, basically trade skills, but opportunities for people at the trade level with reduced English language requirements and for in, in some cases for employers to offer lower wage rates, probably uh, uh, to a maximum of 10% lower than uh, would be applying elsewhere. Now, that a feature of that new designated area migration agreement is that it now is offering a permanency pathway. So not only can people that would have been able to do it through uh, coming in at the skills threshold, but at below the skills threshold could well be eligible for a permanent uh, pathway. So th those are important uh, uh, attractions that will draw people uh, into that pathway and that will mean that there'll be a need to monitor what uh, the effect will be on the businesses and the public sector of those countries that they're coming from. What I've suggested is that there are relatively uh, simple ways of getting a handle on that situation. Now, while I'm saying that the indicators are relatively simple, the issue of, of getting access to the data, uh, of course, can be more difficult, but it's not as inseparable as uh, people have often assumed in looking at uh, labour markets in the Pacific. There are four indicators that I've suggested. One is looking at the <coughs> national skills pool. Uh, each country conducts a census. Um, some countries do it on a five-year basis. Uh, many countries do it on a 10-year basis because of the cost involved. But those censuses, except for the American-influenced uh, uh, censuses, which are those in FSM, RMI and Palau, 
are all conducted using a international standard occupational classification system that the ILO um, looks after. And that gives a level of detail, a high level of disaggregation that enables you to look at occupations that link to qualifications, that can easily be linked to qualifications. Now, in the past, that information has never been used. It's collected at that detailed level, so it can be aggregated up. And traditionally, uh, was always just simply uh, produced uh, results at, at a simple 10 category level. But I've found out that, in fact, in, in all cases except uh, one in Samoa where they didn't uh, do it, but they are now doing it, you can get this more detailed information. There is other information that be, can be gained about APTC graduates, which uh, are now over 10,000 uh, that are being produced over a 10-year period. And that's obviously a very valuable um, core source of skills in the, in the region. Going on to uh, the issue of uh, how well are those uh, graduates uh, engaged in the economy, and this is where it, it is uh, important that new sources of information, particularly for outside the APTC, for training providers to find out what's happening to their graduates. There's a great uh, danger in, in the Pacific that uh, it's been very supply-driven. It's not there wasn't evidence collected about whether particular qualifications were actually uh, of any value in the local labour market. I remember doing an analysis in Tonga and finding out certainly uh, computer-based uh, com um, computer IT qualifications at the lower level had very high levels of unemployment. It's clearly, employers didn't see that they were offering any value. The issue of national skill shortages is one that's uh, a political issue that will be uh, country will have a lot of interest in, but they haven't, uh, in many cases, um, codified the information. They're, all countries have work permits, but as I found out in uh, in Samoa, uh, they didn't collate the information on those occupations to give a, a profile of how many workers were being engaged from overseas on work permits. And also the census is another source of valuable information on the occupations and the qualifications of foreign workers, provided that governments uh, recognise that they should be collecting information on residents who are not citizens. Uh, there's some ambiguity about whether that's what the role of the census is, but if there's a, a clear message that this will provide valuable information for identifying what uh, local training needs are, then it should be possible to encourage that census uh, collection process. And the fourth issue is to identify what the current uh, situation is with people with post-school qualifications. 
The difficulty with the census is that it doesn't collect detailed information on post-school qualifications. That's something that would need to be done and how much detail you can ask for in a census is, is difficult to know. But there are other sources of information about uh, qualifications which obviously the APTC is well placed to provide through its graduate tracer surveys. And uh, it, it, it is also possible to identify the uh, qualifications that would be required for people from the Pacific who migrate into Australia and New Zealand. So what, what I'm saying is that sending countries need to take much more responsibility for identifying what the potential impact is going to be. It's not uh, an obvious, there's a common expression, uh, and Nick might have it in his presentation, that is a triple win. Well, the, the real expression for triple win is that is a potential for triple win. In other words, it's something that has to be worked at to ensure that people are able to get uh, the receiving country and the sending country and the individuals get the benefits out of it. So I think there is a need for a greater emphasis on governance arrangements in the Pacific that encourage both the sending and the receiving country to be more actively involved in, in collecting and analysing this data. And I'm very glad that the APTC uh, is moving to do this uh, and they've asked me to be an advisor on this uh, to ensure that we can identify what existing sources of data are available, what new sources of data are going to be needed, such as collecting job, uh, local job classification information and then coding in a systematic way. I think it will be possible to build up this information, but also there needs to be a means where the uh, governments involved in the sending and receiving uh, ends take more uh, responsibility for identifying what the effects are. And I've said that one mechanism that can be utilised to bring in arrangements that address this issue, that is the arrangement on labour mobility, which was the side agreement to PESA Plus. And in that, it says there's a need to strengthen the collection and harmonisation of labour market statistics in the sending countries and to respond to the export of skilled labour and the need to build up the supply of TVET. With a very active uh, labour market operating domestically and internationally, uh, TVET providers will have much more incentive to uh, upgrade the skills they're providing because they're focusing on international uh, labour markets, but also they'll have an, an incentive to... Uh, collect information on Tracer through what's happening to their graduates because um, basically much more opportunities will be provided and there'll be much more of a good news story to tell. Thank you. Thanks very much, Richard. And Nick Volk? Good morning, everyone. Clearly, Richard and I didn't coordinate our wardrobe this morning. <laughs> I, I do want to go on record and say this is not some weird Pacific Labour Mobility uniform. It's just bad planning on his part. 
was great to hear the Secretary this morning talk about labour mobility as a key cornerstone of Australia's aid program. I think that sort of speaks to some of the things that Kay was referring to in the sense of this has been like a 10-year discussion and I think what uh, the Secretary mentioned this morning means that there is now a great deal of coherence between the Australian political machine and policies in Pacific Island countries. I thought I might spend just a couple of minutes to talk briefly about um, labour mobility and the role of the Pacific Labour Facility. And then I want to focus on one of the fastest growing demand sides in Australia, and that's the aged care industry. It's kind of topical at the moment, given that the Royal Commission started a bit of a, maybe a week and a half ago. And I think what we're going to do is find that there's some significant improvements to both standards, quality and compliance in that industry. And that represents a wonderful opportunity for workers from the Pacific to participate in that market. And we have an IT hitch already. Try here. Okay, so that doesn't work. Yep. When we talk about labour mobility, and Richard's going to pull me up, I think, after this, about this, we talk about it in the sense that it's a triple win. It's obviously a win for workers in the context of um, increased income, greater skills development, experiences within the Australian job market, and it's a win for employers. And if you're an employer who struggles to attract labour and therefore struggles to retain profitability and productivity, this scheme has proved to be a real point of attraction for them. It's also a win for the Pacific Island economies, because naturally this tends to be where remittances are spent, and Alicia has referred to the, you know, to the overwhelming volume of remittances in Tonga. We've got two schemes. I think most people here would be familiar with the Seasonal Workers Scheme. That's been um, operating for over 10 years. It predominantly puts workers into the horticultural industry in Australia for periods of what was six months, it's now gone to nine months. And this year alone, we're estimating that there'll be about 11,000 visas that are issued just for under the seasonal worker program. And I think that sort of speaks volumes for the idea that that scheme has been you know, well um, engaged with both from the Australian producers and, and also from Pacific Island workers. The newer scheme is the Pacific Labor Scheme. That actually was announced in July last year. Um, the facility, unfortunately, only really started in November, so there's a bit of a lag there. You know, I was in Tonga last week, and um, one of our colleagues there said, so you guys are flying the plane while you're building it? And I said, yeah, unfortunately, that, that is the case, which is a little bit daunting as a co-pilot for the PLS. It's a three-year uh, visa. It will look at low- and semi-skilled workers, and it will cover an, a, a range of different sectors, not just horticulture. So we're looking at things like forestry, fisheries, hospitality, aged care. I can talk a bit more about that later. Started with the microstates, Tuvalu, Kiribati and Nauru. Since then, the Solomon Islands, Samoa and Vanuatu have joined and we're reasonably confident, reasonably confident that Tonga will sign an MOU this week and PNG hopefully next month. So that leaves two other countries that currently participate in seasonal workers but not yet in PLS and that's Timor-Leste and Fiji. And I suspect, I, I don't know, but I suspect they'll probably join somewhere towards the end of this year. So we've got three wins, we've got two schemes, but we only really have one single goal and that's economic and social growth within the Pacific and there's a natural connection point with economic 
integration with Australia. So, where does the Pacific Labor Facility fit into this? There's four very much interconnected parts of the work that we do. On the supply side, we're going to be looking at working with the labour sending units to ensure that they can engage fully in the scheme. The net result of that should be that employers can visit Pacific Island countries that are participating with a degree of confidence that they can recruit workers, and this means that the right workers with the right skills sort of at the right time. On the demand side, we're engaging with Australian industry. We've started with these industries only, and this has been sort of organic in the sense that we just haven't had a lot of time to do a lot of in-depth labour market research. Uh, and many, in many ways, these guys have come to us. So once we start engaging with industry in a fuller and more productive way, I'm slightly nervous that demand will increase at a point where we're going to struggle to manage it or to struggle to make sure that supply and demand don't outstrip each other. Not every employer will get in. We're looking for uh, quality over quantity. Employers have to demonstrate that they've got a genuine labour market uh, deficit, and they do this through, through labour market testing. They've got to prove that they can't find labour in the Australian market. They've also got to have a strong financial base, and most importantly, they've got to demonstrate that they've got um, a good track record in terms of compliance with Australian industrial regulations and rules. At the moment, we've got 23 approved employers. I think there's about another 10 that are under application, and there'd be at least 30 or 40 um, that have expressed interest in the scheme. And as I said, that's been pretty much organic, natural growth without a great deal of marketing. Worker welfare commands a lot of attention from the facility, and this is really important that we're putting in safeguards for workers. We're going to spend a fair bit of time on um, pre-departure briefings and on-arrival briefings. We need to make sure that workers understand what they're getting in for, what they're going to be paid, how it's going to work in terms of expectation, and the result of that, we need to have them settled into Australia as quickly as possible. The scheme will provide um, fairly intensive support for the first four or five months. After that, we expect it to diminish as workers become more self-sufficient in the workplace. Um, we do operate a 24-7 hotline so that workers that do need assistance um, have that available to them. I should point out that this, this role doesn't get between an employer and a worker. I mean, that, that relationship is sacrosanct. That needs to happen as it does in any workplace. What it does mean is that um, we're available to assist in getting both parties to look for good solutions to issues when they arise. All of this is um, supported by a quality learning and performance function. It's really important that we get to tell the story of the facility. We get to tell the story of the workers' journeys, the experiences employers have. Um, we need to be able to generate a degree of, of data and evidence um, that can hopefully you know, inform policy, both domestically here and in the Pacific. And, and just as importantly, we need to be able to know when to sort of correct the direction of this thing if we need to. And obviously, you know, continual improvement is a big factor of all of this. So, the famous aged care market. It's high growth. Australia has an ageing population. By 2020, the estimate is there'll be 3 million people that are aged over 70. If any of you have ageing parents or are over 70 yourselves, um, you know, this will loom fairly large in your thinking, potentially. It's high growth also in the sense of its, um, its uh, growth year on year. I mean, at the moment it's growing about 5% a year, so it's one of those industries in Australia that 
um, is going to be around for a long time and it's going to get bigger and bigger up to a point. It's worth about $20 billion a year um, and it's one of these industries that is quite fragmented. So it's not like where we go to buy our groceries where we go, might go to Coles or Woolies and we might have a choice of one other. Uh, the top 10 um, industry participants in aged care represent only about 25% of the whole market. So again, it's a really great opportunity for us to engage with a range of different players in different areas and we're not sort of faced with just dealing with one or two biggies. So for us, for the facility at least, and for the Pacific, I think it's a really good, a good option. Most of the locations are, are um, existing in the eastern seaboard and about 40% of those are fall within the catchment area for the PLS, which is defined as rural and regional, which is a bit weird because Adelaide's included and Perth, but um, essentially what's excluded are Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and a couple of the satellite suburbs around those cities. So, um, yeah, that's a dictate, I guess, from the um, Department of Home Affairs. At the moment, 51% of all vacancies are unfilled in the aged care industry. So, again, it really speaks volumes for access for the Pacific. To be a personal care worker, um, uh, that's just one option. But what's really exciting is the ancillary staff. So these are the people that work in the laundries. They do the cleaning work. They work in kitchens. Uh, grounds work, maintenance work, those sort of things. So for the Pacific, there's, there's one cadre of workers um, that need to be qualified to gain entry, and there's a whole raft of others um, that don't need a degree of qualifications but can still participate. So if you want to be a personal care worker in this country, you need to be qualified to Australian at an Australian level. And this is where our colleagues from the APTC um, become very, very important to the Pacific Labor Scheme. Employers consider employability skills is really, really important. Um, and this is not just um, for this industry. This is a foundational thing across all industries and from every employer we speak to. So there's things like English language capacity, um, the ability to manage your time, uh, the ability to communicate and work well in teams, show initiative, show leadership, all those sort of things. And again, there's potentially a fabulous role for the APTC to play in preparing workers for employment at, in those sort of areas. So why is this attractive? Well, for employers that can't find workers in, in a range of different rural and regional locations, um, this represents a fantastic opportunity to, to sustain their business. All of a sudden they've got access to a market that they didn't have before. I know it's a generalisation, but I think there's a wonderful cultural alignment with the values of Pacific Islanders and the needs of the aged care industry. And I think um, I think it's fair to say that the way Pacific people deal with elderly, with community, with family, um, really lends itself to some of the things that they'll need to do in the aged care industry, particularly in a residential facility. Pacific Islanders have a fabulous willingness to work remotely. We've got seven personal care workers at the moment from Kiribati that are based in Longreach. And I don't think you can think of too many places that are further away from the sea than Longreach. Anyway, they've, they've settled in really well to the point where the employer who runs a range of facilities on the East Coast now wants another four personal care workers from Kiribati to go and work in Bowen in um, central Queensland. So having um, that willingness, and you know, the Pacific's famous for people travelling all over the place for years and years. It's, this is not a new thing. This is not something that I think daunts people, particularly workers from the Pacific. It's a long history of seafaring. In fact, I learnt last week in Tonga that there's more Tongans in the States 
than there are in New Zealand and Australia, which was news to me. I assumed it would be New Zealand first, Australia second, the States third. It's not that. And it's extremely cost-effective for, um, for employers to engage with the PLS to gain workers into, into both personal care area and also in the ancillary parts of this. No discussion of labour mobility is complete with a whole bunch of figures. So, I mean, I'm not going to go through these except to make two quick points. There's about, about 70 or 80 percent of a lot of personal care workers have to be hired through agency, which is the same as, a, I guess, a temp or a labour supply um, outfit. Even though the workers themselves get paid the award, the costs that are met by the employer when they're hiring through agency are significantly more. And a quick example we've drawn up there says that if I've got five personal care workers in my residential aged care facility, and if I can hire them through an avenue like the PLS, then I'm going to save around about $128,000 a year. Wages are the most significant portion of expenses for this area of business, just as they are in many other industries. So I think that, that for an employer represents an extremely attractive proposition. Um, I think I'm probably going to be running out of time soon, so I just want to quickly wrap up. Um, I just want to make two key points. Discussions we have with employers have indicated that there's an almost universal interest and attractiveness about accessing workers for three years. And you can imagine if you're at Longreach or in Tully or Innisfail or any of the regional locations, it's very, very hard to attract labour to those, those places. So for employers, it's, it's a wonderful thing. The potential triple win that I want to leave you with is that for the workers. Um, I know this is anecdotal, but we, we sort of spent two years trialling this with Kiribati, Tuvalu and Nauru. And the opportunities that workers have to participate in this and the skills that they get and the sort of the financial basis that they can set themselves and family and community up with um, is a really wonderful thing. And it's probably the most tangible um, part of the aid program I've been involved in. And that's why a lot of people that do this work feel so passionate about it. You can see real demonstrable differences to people's lives. I have an employer that went to Tuvalu and um, was talking to a range of potential uh, workers there. And he got up and he said to them, I will transform your lives. I will transform your lives. And it sounds a bit evangelical, doesn't it? But the reality is that it does. The difference that it makes in the workers' lives is, is tremendous. So anyway, thanks for your attention. I'm getting the wind up. And Andy Fong Toy. Uh, thank you, Andy. Okay, I'll just press. Yeah, I press the... Oh, sorry. Is that that one? Okay. the page down. Yep. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm really conscious that I am the fourth speaker and that it's really hot, so thank you for your patience. The one advantage of coming last, of course, is that, you know, sometimes a lot of what you're going to say is covered, so I'll, I'll skip over some of my, uh, what I was going to say. Um, so what I want to do in the 10 minutes I've been allotted is, is to just, I suppose, give you a taster of um, how APTC uh, will try and assist in realising uh, a net skills gain for the Pacific, and, and particularly what does this mean and how do we achieve it? Um, as you've heard from Kay, uh, APTC3 has a renewed emphasis on labour mobility, uh, which is a key strategic shift. Um, and part of that is ensuring uh, and, and ensuring a net skills gain uh, is a fundamental engagement principle of our approach to labour mobility. 
Uh, Australia, those of you who are familiar with um, APTC uh, 1 and 2 and now in 3, so Australia has provided uh, for more than a decade significant uh, development assistance uh, and now under APTC 3 it includes training a potentially mobile workforce with targeted skills in their own countries. And you've heard from Nick, uh, APTC and PLF, we were designed together. Uh, so it is very critical that we work together. Uh, of course, we are focusing uh, on the skills uh, and the supply aspect of labour mobility. So defining net skills gain. Uh, there is a foundational assumption uh, that there is a link between labour mobility and skills training. Uh, that is that the creation of pathways for, labor, for skilled labour mobility creates a need and an incentive to provide skills training to equip people uh, to meet labour market needs in another country. So as I said, what is net skills gain? Um, there are, sorry, I'll go back. Uh, there are two uh, separate and critical dimensions of net skills gain. And the first, uh, as you've heard both from Alisi and Richard, uh, is strategic efforts to ensure that increased labour mobility does not result uh, in brain drain. Uh, in the Pacific in particular, that our, our essential, essential and limited supply of technical and vocational skills is not adversely affected uh, by labour mobility and migration. And the sec second, which is equally important, uh, is strategic efforts to ensure that uh, our Pacific Island countries actually uh, achieve brain gain, and Alicia has spoken to that. Uh, and this has two elements. The first is uh, by way of increased domestic skills uh, because of spillover effects uh, from uh, enhanced international training in-country. And the second, of course, is the additional skills that are achieved with the medium and longer-term impacts of circular migration. Uh, and the previous speakers have talked about that, the triple win uh, and increased uh, skills gained by circular migration. And you note that um, what we're focusing uh, on is circular migration as opposed to permanent migration. And, and I'd like to do a plug here for TVET because I think what uh, we experience in the Pacific, but I don't think it's specific to the, uh, the Pacific, I think it's global, is um, uh, I suppose a prioritisation uh, for the academic pathway as opposed to the, the, the TVET or the skills pathway. And I think in the future what we must look at is we must shift the focus you know, predominantly on this academic pathway um, and encourage uh, a pathway that is about net skills. Uh, and that's for the, you know, for the government, the educational uh, institutes, and the, and the families. Uh, and that's something that, that um, you know, APC, APDC, we are exploring, that, you know, the, the sort of a, a, a more value placed on, on TVET. So, so how are we going to achieve this net skills gain? APTC3 is the regional example of a global skills partnership. And so we are working with our partners uh, in developing strategies to mitigate brain drain, enhance brain gain, and achieve uh, a net skills gain. And I'd like to uh, focus, this is basically the major part of my presentation, is focus on, on the strategies that we uh, are going to uh, do to achieve this. So the first one is we're creating a dual-track approach to training, uh, which will meet uh, both domestic and international skills needs within our overall training profile. And Richard has touched upon um, our plans uh, for enhanced, enhanced planning process and strengthened country-specific uh, labour market analysis uh, that Richard will be helping us with. So as uh, we have improved uh, labour market uh, information and improved information as well on demand, 
we will uh, provide uh, a range of full qualifications and accredited skill sets, which will be delivered by either APTC or other training or other Pacific training institutes. Uh, and this is part also of uh, APTC3, uh, a greater focus on partnerships um, and strengthening the delivery of training uh, in the region by national or regional other regional training institutions. So the domestic track will respond to regional and country-specific labour markets, and our international track will be broadly determined by uh, employment opportunities in Australia and New Zealand and beyond. And I want to stress that when you talk to um, Pacific Island countries, they are not just focused on Australia and New Zealand, which is, I think, the expectation of, of or the, you know, the, the perception of people in the region. Um, our countries are focused way beyond uh, Australia and New Zealand. And some of them are very active, uh, and Solomon Islands is an example where they have uh, an arrangement with Canada, uh, and it's, it's sort of uh, small at this stage, but it has the potential for a number of Solomon Islands uh, to move across to Canada. Uh, and as we've stressed already, we will work closely with the, the PLF and NICS team to ensure that the, the qualifications that we deliver on our international track are very closely aligned with the industry, industry sectors and the qualification levels that are required by Australian employers. Uh, we are developing our international track uh, at the moment, um, and what we will provide is additional customised labour mobility short courses. Um, Increased labour mobility can also play a catalytic role in improving the quality of TVET in the Pacific. And as international labour mobility opportunities, including the Pacific Labour Scheme, expand, this will provide an additional incentive to improve the standards of training and services available locally. So this could result in an increased domestic take-up of TVET education uh, when this <coughs> TVET education demonstrates high standards. And this will be by people that either have no intention of migrating or start with intention of doing so and then don't migrate for whatever reason. There's also a spillover effect on the high skills required for trainers, uh, which in itself is a skills gain uh, for the region. And so as I said, for this, for this reason, it's really critical that we work with our local partners and existing regional and national training institutions, both the public and private, to support uh, improved TVET delivery. Uh, and this will include investing in the professional development of trainers, uh, professional exchanges, uh, rotating of short-term inputs for, uh, from external trainers so that we can assist uh, in addressing the technical deficits in the training institutions across the region. We're also going to support key regional initiatives which is aimed at improving the quality of TVET and the mutual recognition of skills, qualification uh, and competencies. And an example of that is the Pacific Communities Education and Quality Assessment Programme. We're also going to explore opportunities for increased uh, co-investment uh, in skills training. And then there's the uh, examples and the potential for government-to-government -government relationships to provide additional uh, investment in skills development uh, in the Pacific, uh, including through free trade agreements, financial assistance, teacher exchanges, and assistance in developing labour mobility frameworks. And I note just in passing uh, the Pacer Plus side arrangement, which Richard has already referred to, uh, it includes an agreement to support uh, Pacific Island countries' aspirations for labour mobility. And there's also examples of private sector programs where overseas employers finance pre-migration uh, pre skills for new hires. And the Kiribati uh, Marine Training Centre is an example uh, in our region. And there's also evidence that uh, the prospect of skilled and semi-skilled migration can increase 
uh, individuals' investment in education, that individuals uh, become willing to pay, uh, you know, uh, or at least partly pay for the education. We also need to invest uh, in uh, returned workers. Um, Uh, and there's a potential uh, for APC and our partners, including the, the Pacific Labour Facility uh, and uh, you know, the Pacific Island countries themselves, to support returnees so that they, they uh, apply the knowledge that they've gained uh, in their home countries. And this could include the diaspora communities uh, who already are supporting development projects and also support uh, for returnees to start their own businesses. And, and Alisi's talked about that. Um, and there's keen interest and support by Pacific countries to support end-to-end full-circle programs for circular migration. Uh, at APTC, we're looking, uh, as part of net uh, skills gain, we're looking at designing a returning workers' offer. And this may include things like career guidance, um, uh, RPL, RPL, which is recognised uh, prior learning uh, to Australian qualifications with gap training, small business training and life skills, for example, managing finances. Returnees could also be supported to access labour market information about, home, uh, about opportunities in the home countries. Uh, and there are examples, for example, uh, so in Germany, um, uh, the GIZ uh, has done a lot of uh, activities in the area where we could have a dedicated website. Uh, we could use in, uh, reintegration scouts um, so that people, before they return or on return, they put in contact uh, with businesses and organisations where there are work opportunities. And the point I want to make here is that the benefits accruing to the individual returning workers can be extrapolated into a wide achievement of net skills gain over time and across the economy as a whole. And so just to wrap up, um, what I want to stress uh, is the importance of a collaborative approach. Um, and this is uh, critical if we're to minimise the negative effects of an outward flow of critical technical and vocational skills without limiting uh, individual choices. And so we must address the underlying cause of immigration uh, and, expanding, and expand skills workers' choices in ways that expand the opportunities for employment. But this is not something that one program can fix. And so, as I said, we need a collaborative coalition building approach to complement other migration policies and mechanisms that could ma maximise returns for Pacific Island countries. And so, for our part at APTC, we're engaging with relevant national ministries, national employers, development partners, national TVET providers, and the Pacific Labour Facility to ensure that our support for skills gain is tailored to each context and responds to national government priorities. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andy. Um, we now have, um, I think we have to be out of here 25 past. Did someone say the room was needed at 25 past? <coughs> so we have um, a good 10 minutes, 12 minutes for conversation. Um, can you keep your comments or questions short and sharp um, so that as many people as we can have an opportunity to Excuse me, ask a question. So, uh, okay, there's a few here. What do you prefer? One, two, three, four. And that will, I'll do the next four after that. So, the gentleman here. Well, thanks to the panel for the insights and the ability. I was keen to hear a bit more about the social impacts 
you know, what the benefits and challenges for the participants have been in these programs for people to provide your incentives. No, we'll have had a one, and um, I'm just going to get some water so I don't expire. Um, so, was, who would like to take that question? Elise, would you like to, to take it first? Because you've studied it deeply. I haven't studied it deeply. <laughs> but you will. <laughs> But yes, the, the social side of, of labor mobility is something that um, has very limited research done on it, um, but it's a very important aspect of labor mobility that requires policy attention. Um, the negative impacts on families that are left behind as workers are relieved um, for extended periods of time can be quite serious. There have been anecdotal evidence of um, families being separated uh, marital issues as well as impact on children um, because there are cases when both there are that both parents would leave um, one would go to New Zealand and one would go to Australia or they would go both both work in, um, in 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 one country and so there is a need from the sending country perspective for us to develop um, targeted policies to actually address those um, those issues. A lot of those social issues are also connected to the, the economic issues as well, because when the remittances don't come in, that's when the problems start to happen. Um, and also when workers come back, whether there is a social reintegration program. Um, but a lot of, of the social issues, they are um, actually managed by the women. Um, and so when we assess the policies in sending countries, it's very clear that um, women have a, a lower participation rate, but they tend to be the ones managing the remittances and they're the heads of the households when the men migrate. And so they need to be integrated into um, the policy as well as in the management of labor mobility. Mm -hmm. So that's an area that um, requires policy attention from both um, the sending country and the receiving country. And there is a need also uh, in terms of pastoral care for the workers when they are here in Australia. Obviously, these are workers that most of them have not been exposed to these um, new environments. Um, and so there is a need for targeted pastoral care. Um, and so um, there is a, a need for cooperation between uh, Australia and New Zealand as well as in um, the, the Pacific to, to really provide that level of pastoral care. So yeah, the social side of things, it's both the workers and the families. Um, so that's something that we still really need to, to work on. And I was at a forum last week where the, an assertion was made that um, uh, labour mobility leads to increased domestic violence. Now, I don't know the data. I'll need to go and, and look at this, but people are making those, those links and want to understand uh, what the evidence is as distinct from what the assertions are. The second person, yes. Uh, Paul Bird from ABI. Um, we know a lot of people when they come back uh, want to start their own business. Uh, they've uh, got that vision and that dream. <coughs> Will there also be support, Andy, or, or Nick around? Um, it's not always easy to do that, uh, not always fitting into uh, what opportunities there are. So, is there going to be support around that as well? Yeah, we call that an unfortunate 
word called reintegration. It sounds like you know somebody reintegrating from prison or something, but it's it's obviously not that. Um, it's a really important thing that, that people that have had this experience in Australia get to make best use, not just of the money, but of the skills that they've gained here. Um, the sort of we haven't started the process yet, and I think I think starting of your own business is a really interesting thing, but we don't want everybody to start their same business in the same small economy. So there needs to be a fair bit of planning that um, needs to be done to kind of smooth that out a bit. The whole idea of reintegration and what you do needs to start before you leave. Um, these discussions need to happen with family, the workers and their families and communities. They need to be supported to achieve whatever aspirations they have while they're in Australia and then there needs to be that other level of support um, when they get home and that I think needs to be done in concert with the ministry or the Labor Ministry or Social Affairs or women, Women's Affairs in these places. There's also a wonderful role for um, other organisations to be involved and I know the Starting Your Own Business training that I think AVI um, provides across the Pacific would be a, a fantastic adjunct to the whole idea of reintegration. Um, but it is more than just starting a business. I mean, it can be many, many things. I'd like um, some of our workers to think about doing things as a collective. So we're not potentially competing with each other, um, but they're pooling resources, they're pooling money, um, and they're finding a niche in a market that they can, you know, I guess, um, successfully exploit. Andy, do you want to add anything to that? No. Okay, and yeah. the woman up. Yeah, in the beautiful pink. Yeah. Yes, you <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm Wayne from Peebles. Um, here's representative of the Pacific Women. Um, I'd like to thank uh, all the presenters. I think it's very uh, informative and, and uh, updating from this one. This time, what they have to regional uh, undertakings on the labor movement. The question that I'd like to raise is um, I, 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 I heard there was mention that there's um, a difference in the number of um, recruited um, leaders from different countries. I understand that Tuvalu, Kiribati, and uh, was here, no. were the first to be trialed on this um, <coughs> labor mobility. But it seems that they've been in um, um, uh, other countries in the Pacific having increased numbers. Uh, I'm not saying that I don't, um, I don't want other countries to, 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 to have high numbers. But I'm interested to why, why that happens. Because I know in Kiribati there's a lot of challenge. There are some young men coming back in sense that because they, they're not happy. And I think that's one um, issue that we need to address as well. And uh, I also wish to understand um, how, they, how the recruitment is done in the various countries. Um, I'm interested in the um, Tonga. Recruitment, where she, she mentioned that they're, they're doing a proper thing uh, of uh, picking up uh, And given sometimes there's this um, disagreement 
there's complaints from different parliamentarians because some have their people from the Art Island sitting down examination and screening test and they see waiting for years <coughs> to the, until, until so let's take that in, in two parts. Firstly, <coughs> what are the current frameworks and policy settings around uh, recruitment mm. and why did it broaden out and what are the kind of broad rules? And the, the second part is your experience. So, Nick... Can well, I'd like to take the first part yes, yeah. and hand over to Alicia. Yeah. Um, thank you for your, for your question. Uh, Kiribati, Nauru and Tuvalu were given what we call a first mover advantage about two years ago, two and a half years ago. And that was under what was called um, the Northern Australia Worker Pilot Program, which was morphed into the PLS. And the reason that the microstates were provided that, that sort of opportunity was because obviously um, populations were, were low. Um, there was um, more impediments for them to get involved in labour mobility than some of the bigger, um, more robust economies such as Vanuatu, Tonga, uh, Samoa and, uh, and others. So that's the reason that that, that advantage was provided. Um, and that was only, a, that was never going to be forever, obviously. Um, so we've seen now uh, Samoa, Solomons and Vanuatu have entered the PLS. Um, I've had this discussion, I think, all over the Pacific and I've referred to this as a market. And in any market, there's going to be people that really engage and they do really, really well, and there's others that, that sometimes miss the bus. And I'm not saying that's happened to Kiribati, but what I am saying is that labour policies um, in the microstates, uh, the performance of the labour sending units and the commitment to engagement is something that, that will need to be strengthened by the facility so that, um, you know, that all the microstates get a fair go. The other thing, final point I want to make on this is that this is a demand-driven program and so workers in certain industries will have a um, preference to go to a country because they've either been on a holiday or they've got a family member who's from there or they've had a great experience with Tongan workers before so they want to go back to Tonga. So not all of this can be done as a nice even, everybody gets the same. So a lot of it will be depending upon where the demand comes from and a lot of it will depend upon, you know, the labour sending units in these countries really getting on board, putting in resources, uh, and again, that's the job of the facility. And that's a key message, I think, that has come out across the panel, that this is a reciprocity here. It's not what the policies of Australia are or what the policies of New Zealand are or the policies of India. It's about how those policies are framed and the implementation arrangements put in place to allow both sides to talk to each other in meaningful ways and put together practical things. Alicia, would you like to respond from a Tongan perspective about the recruitment yes. issue? Um, each island has their own recruitment policies. So it's it's their initiative of what kind of recruitment they, they want to adopt. In Tonga's case, it's managed by government. In contrast to, to Vanuatu, which is privatized, they have private agencies that do the recruitment for them. But Tonga took the initiative right from the very beginning, even with the New Zealand program, that the recruitment will be focused on the, on the unemployed, the, the a pro-poor recruitment policy. 
And so um, there is a focus on those that are not employed or um, have informal employment or low-paid formal employment. So they get priority. Um, and that's done through the selection process and the application process. Government manages a work-ready pool um, of workers which employers could select from, and employers also have the opportunity to select um, their workers themselves. So that's how the Tongan experience, and obviously employer satisfaction is really key to them coming back. Mm. And I know that... Um with previous systems, particularly with uh, graduates from the Kiribati uh, Marine Institute, they were often sent back from boats or flown back from boats. So it's, it's not a peculiarity of this system, but it is a, a broader issue uh, of selection and preparation. Um, I'm going to take a couple of questions from this side of the room. Oh, Stephanie, you were fourth, but make it quick, sorry. Mine very quick, yeah. it's more answering the first, but I just wanted to go back to the first question on social issues. And I think it's really important for us to learn from other experiences like the scholarship program and what's happened. There's some really good examples coming out of there. Um, even things like the fly-in and fly-out sectors and the mining industries where people are away from their homes, men and women, for months on end um, during the year. Um, and some of the large infrastructure programs. And I think there are some consistent issues that come out um, based on those experiences. Uh, I, I did think there's probably, and you'll need to crunch the numbers, but if you look in, in those increased risks of things like um, people turning to alcohol because they're lonely or domestic violence or um, you know, increased risk of STIs or whatever. And I think you could have a quadruple win if you also looked at the fact that these are also issues that affect that. And if you put things like um, um, non-communicable diseases in um, that affect all the Pacific Island countries that we are speaking of. So there could be some real wins in terms of both your training and your welfare systems if you um, looked at, at mainstreaming some of those issues um, into those programs in any case. So it's probably just more of a comment. Yeah, question. and I think that re that reinforces the central question that to make this work for everyone, it's going to require everyone to chip in. Everyone be part of the conversation, not saying, well, I do this and I do that and I'm ascending and I'm a receiving. It is going to be a mighty collaborative effort and that's where APTC is, is trying to exercise its convening and facilitating power to get that collaboration. Um, uh, one, two. Yes. So uh, one up the back and, and you. Sorry. And that'll, that'll have to be it, I'm afraid. So um, I, I guess, yeah, I'm pointing. Yeah. I mean, how did, I mean, we all know, I mean, I guess the the, the best returns for this are for the people who are job ready, if you like. So in places like Papua New Guinea, um, I did here of a, something that you were working with um, women from highlands. I mean, it's a lot, obviously, a lot more um, challenging, but potentially a greater benefit. What's your experience there? PNG is a really good example of a country that, that has been a low participant um, rate in seasonal working program. They're not in the PLS yet, but, but I believe they will be. Um, so the women in agriculture sort of construct that we're working with was for seasonal workers and was essentially taking um, women from, I think it was the Anga province and Western Highlands, don't quote me on that because one of those two will be wrong, 
Um, but it was essentially taking women that were farmers and bringing them to Australia to work in, in similar industries, whether it was, I don't think it was citrus, but I think it was lettuce, cabbage, um, smaller sort of horticultural items. Um, that's worked, um, I think it's worked particularly well, and there was an awful lot of consultation that went into that in terms of dealing with communities about the willingness for, for them to support women that were going away. Um, I think every family was, was um, uh, consulted in terms of impact on the family, and I think some of the some of the women, most of them were in Queensland, we were only there for up to six months, so it wasn't a uh, you know a huge amount of time. Employers have now gone, yeah, we want some more, and it's now actually it's one of those ripple effects where and you know producers all talk to each other; they're like the biggest gossips ever. So we've now got a farmer in Bacchus Marsh in Victoria who said, yeah. Um, I know the um, Ironbark Citrus in Queensland. I've seen the work that these women do. Um, I want to get. I want some just like it, and I want them from PNG, and I want them from that community. And what we found in terms of the way um, women operated in that particular workplace was that they were they didn't pick stuff as fast as men, but they were far more careful, and the quality was far higher. So that sort of the economic and productivity gains for the producer far outweighed you know people that picking. Incorrectly, just to fill a fill a bin or quota. Does that give you a sense of? Yeah. 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 And also the massive yeah. impact on the health facilities in the Pacific because there's this huge number having visas. Uh, it's a massive impact on the Pacific. We haven't had a bad year. No. Um, but we will. Sorry. <laughs> 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 no, it's going over lunch. Final question. Final question. Yeah. Final question. Um, I'm Irene Whitten, from DFAT. Um, my question is, with the increased level of investment in infrastructure, economic infrastructure in the Pacific, you know, uh, by Australia but by other partners also, um, is there scope to, you know, um, target um, developing skills in the in the area of like maintenance, longer term maintenance of this infrastructure that's going to be put in. So training up, um, you know, Pacific workforce um, to do that maintenance, both men and also women. Could, could I ask Andy to respond to that because it is something that's under discussion at the moment. <laughs> Thank you very much. So as said, um, APTC is, is having discussions with. Uh, you know, the major financial banks like the World Bank, uh, uh, Asian Development Bank, but also, you know, we, we would like to talk to uh, Australia because of your you know, Australian uh, investment facility. And we're really keen to get both skills and employment dividends out of the big infrastructure projects. Um, and, and so, as I said, not, not just employment as in the, you know, the, the unskilled of labouring, but, but to build that capacity um, so that you do get construction workers, you do get the supervisors and middle management in, in the infrastructure projects. Uh, and I know Richard, you know, a few years ago did a, did a piece for the World Bank on, on trying to get that employment uh, and skills dividend in, in part of the infrastructure project. We're also keen, as I said you know, in my presentation, to look at intra-regional mobility, and I think Papua New Guinea is, is a case in point where you know, the, the statistics for Papua New Guinea in terms of their foreign workers is fairly high, and, and I don't, you know, to me there's no reason why Pacific Islanders couldn't fill uh, you know, those jobs as opposed to and I, and I might add that the APTC board on the agenda when it meets um, Thursday and Friday of this week has got the issue of integrating skills development 
into um, infrastructure, uh, building on the new infrastructure facility, but on a lot of the earlier work that uh, Richard has done and has been experimented around Australia. So I think I'd say on that, watch this space, because I think a new opportunity with the infrastructure uh, facility coming up. Um, I noticed that some of you were um, uh, taking pictures of the board. Uh, if you would like copies of the presentations, um, I'll leave some pages here at the front, and if you could leave your email address, and that we would like to begin a conversation with you and let you know uh, what we're doing next and how things are evolving, not you silly with it. Um, just two more things. Um, I, three. Thank you. It's been very hot, but I notice our friend from Kiribati has a shawl on. <laughs> so she's not noticing it. Uh, and we'll be as strong. Um, secondly, uh, we have a large carpet scroll, uh, which is about, it is called <coughs> Civic Skills Partnership Scroll. And we are signing up people from all over the Pacific, starting with our foundational group of APTC, USP, Chamber of Commerce, um, uh, Piango, and Government of Nauru. The President of Nauru is an initiative of years. So there, there is no voucher. You won't get any call for payment. Uh, it is just a symbolic, in a Pacific way, a symbolic expression of our support for Pacific uh, skills development. So Mere over here um, has the tarpa. She carries it everywhere. And if you were inclined to sign it, that would be wonderful. Uh, and finally, um, may I thank the panel. I think this was a terrific discussion. Um, each member of the panel was able to kind of shed a different lens onto the issues and from a deep well of experience. Uh, but we want the conversation to continue. Uh, this is the start of something big. Um, so thank you. So if you can join with me in thanking the panel. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.